I don't know. The morning of the day I got sick, I've been thinking. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best is over. Many Americans, I think, feel that way. It's Britney, bitch. And uh, the Iraq, everywhere, like, such as. I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Out, Charlie! Our next-door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. Here's a take that I've actually been saving up. A good friend of mine, Andrea, uh, an Italian fellow who has appeared on this very podcast, once asked me to explain why is it in American sports, in baseball and football, why are they never fucking playing? Why are there so many stoppages of play? Because he's used mm-hmm. to, you know, soccer, where even if the score is 0-0, zero, zero, people are at least always moving. I said, Andrea, this all comes down to the psychosexual condition of Americans. This is about <laughs> tension and release. It's about <laughs> being denied <laughs> pleasure. It's about edging. It's about the fact that Americans all low-key hate themselves. And so they're like, you know what? I don't deserve to see action. I deserve to see the Whopper commercial over and over and over (laughs) again. I'm going to be a good little pain piggy for the commissioner in the league. Mm. You can give me my enjoyment when I've earned it, daddy. That's what it's about. (laughs) Because the two most American sports that they can't export to the rest of the world are the tension and release ones. Baseball and football? Yeah. Although, I mean, compared to football, baseball has taken the world by storm, right? Because you at least got Japan playing it and, like, Mm -hmm. Venezuela. It's wild how basketball has become the world's second largest sport. Mm -hmm. NATO destroyed Yugoslavia just so that the dream team would win that <laughs> olympics dude you cannot convince me otherwise <laughs> things would have been just fine in the balkans if it weren't for basketball in nato right yeah the serbs crushing it at uh, sports recently my barber who's from kosovo he hates serbs obviously and he says that they love to be the heel they mm. love to be the bad guy i can imagine like, a serbian looking guy just with a scarface poster that says say goodnight to the bad guy in his bedroom <laughs> No, finish your thought about Serbs and being the heel. He says it's tough for him because, like, because I was like, oh, do you root for Jokic? He's a Balkan brother. And he's like, yeah, it's cool to see a neighboring country pop off. But also, (laughs) when I was eight, they took away my father and my uncles and made them go to a camp for the rest of the war to make sure they didn't become combatants. (laughs) Yeah, your barber has a dialectical relationship to his feelings about Serbs. It's like, on the one hand, Jokic puts on a mean game and an even meaner press conference afterwards. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they did intern my family, so you know, <laughs> mixed feelings. Yeah. My barber is a hilarious man. Every time I sit down in the chair, he goes like, oh man, I tell you, you ever just like wake up in the morning and you just feel like, fuck it, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, motherfucker, you're supposed to listen to my problems. <laughs> 
Do you just do this all day with everyone who comes in? Yeah, goddamn. <laughs> Why do you keep going? Well, he's good with hair, I guess, but okay. Geo. Shout out to Geo, who also has some of the most retrograde views on gender roles. <laughs> sure, sure. Very Tony Soprano approach to the household distribution of chores. My barber is younger than me, by the way, but also he was shaving my neck one time, blade to my neck, and is going on about how he thinks that women shouldn't be allowed to drive. Mm. And I'm like, what kind of response do you give this person when they're in the middle of shaving you? Mm -hmm. Are you just like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. That's crazy, bro. They <laughs> <laughs> should be like, you know, I don't think anybody should drive. I think driving should be illegal. Yeah. I mean, this man lives in Yonkers and cuts hair in downtown Brooklyn. So damn, dude. I, insane. Yeah. Speaking of Serbs worshiping Tony Montana. Hey, everybody. It's Remember Shuffle. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my co-host, Jordano. Oh! Oh, hey. your ash. <laughs> And today, if you couldn't have guessed from the way he said that, slash our pleasantries in the beginning, we are discussing season one of HBO's The Sopranos. Why are we doing this today, Jordano? I mean, it's been 33 episodes, and we haven't talked about The Sopranos, which is insane, because mm -hmm. this is it. This is the show. This is, like, the greatest cultural artifact from the decade. I have seen this show as many times as Mike Duncan has seen Mary Antoinette. <laughs> More, I think. I've seen it about 11 times. Good God. End to end. Every episode. Well, yeah, because especially once you get into, like, the eighth rewatch, you start just watching random episodes. Mm -hmm. You don't start with season Season one and you'd be like oh, i'm just gonna watch season five this week mm. or something right like you kind of just jump around to whatever the itch is and so we've waited this long because like, it was an incredibly intimidating experience for me to say like, here's 90 minutes tell us about why you love the show i mean and if this episode's a big hit trust me we, we could do 90 hours on <laughs> we could do 900 hours on this show like well, i will talk the word we is doing a lot of work there <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, maybe we should get over to your fandom of the show for a second. <laughs> no, you, you finish your thought and then I'll, I'll jump in. We did an episode on Rome with Mike Duncan, and that was great because Ben had a chance to shine and show his incredibly impressive knowledge of classical history. And I was thinking to myself that The Sopranos is probably the closest thing that I have to a PhD on anything. And I have a Sopranos tattoo. I have driven out to the Tony Soprano house multiple times with a bathrobe. I am an insane, insane fan for this show. But this was a much requested episode in the comments because, yeah, how do you discuss 2000s pop culture and not discuss the best and most important one without a doubt but yeah what jordana was alluding to is that i despite having a 2000s pop culture podcast i have not finished the show don't yell at me oh, <laughs> oh. and jordano for several years was bullying me anytime i mentioned watching anything jordano would be like oh interesting you have time to watch blank but you didn't watch the sopranos yet put in an example of a show you actually watched <laughs> No, I refuse. <laughs> the one instance I remember, I watched the John Favreau movie, Chef, because I like to dabble in the kitchen. It's a sweet movie, and I like John Favreau. And Jordana was like, oh, interesting. You have time to watch your fucking cook movie, but you don't mm -hmm. have time for the greatest show of all time. There's a John Favreau episode of The Sopranos. Jordano has a convert's zeal. He's like an early Christian. Have you heard <laughs> the good word? Have you heard the good news is actually the appropriate quote, because that 
that is a line often used in The Sopranos. Ah, okay. Have you heard the good news? <laughs> but I have watched all of season one, so I am qualified to talk about that. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll be talking about season one today. Technically, it was filmed in the 90s, but, I mean, let's get real. This is a show that people were watching in the 2000s on DVD, and it set the standard for what television would become in the 2000s. And my goal for this episode is to get the listener to understand why this show is considered to be the greatest of all time. I had an experience the other night with someone and she wasn't showing the proper amount of respect for The Sopranos, (laughs) which hurt me very deeply. Like a fucking knife and a hawk. And I told her because she was on her phone while she was watching. It was like one of my biggest pet peeves ever is like, Mm -hmm. do not be on your phone while you watch The Sopranos because you will miss the things that make it good. And I said, go to Google and I will bet you anything that if you Google what is considered to be the greatest television show of all time, that The Sopranos will be number one on the list for as many results as you want to go through. And we did this. Of course, the very first result was a list from Rolling Stone, Sopranos number one. Number two, I think it was a list from Vulture, Sopranos number one. Number three, The Sopranos was rated number two. So this was her gotcha moment Mm. where she was like, oh, this list only has The Sopranos in number two. What was one? Uh, I want to say, oh, it was fucking Breaking Bad. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Photocopy of a photocopy. Right. And maybe if you told me, hey, you get to watch a TV show one time, maybe I would watch Breaking Bad first. But mm-hmm. but The Sopranos is the greatest show because it has both the critical appeal of something like The Wire or Twin Peaks, but also the commercial appeal of a Big Bang Theory or a CSI. <laughs> and so this is such a once in a lifetime, you know, two hurricanes meeting. That's what, what makes the show special. And I'd like to quote a book right now called The Sopranos Sessions, which I've listened to every Sopranos podcast, a bunch of books. Sopranos Sessions, I think, is by far my favorite book on The Sopranos. And this is their summation of the pilot, specifically. They say, The pilot is a hybrid slapstick comedy, domestic sitcom, and crime thriller. With dabs of 70s American New Wave grit, it is high and low art, vulgar and sophisticated. It mixes disreputable spectacle, casual nudity, gory executions, drugs, profanity, and retrograde sentiments with flourishes from postmodern novels, dialectical theater, and mid-century European art house cinema. The series is sometimes as much about the relationship with his audience as it is about the world the artist depicts. The self-awareness gives the opening scene where Tony stares up at the statue in Dr. Melfi's office another layer. This is a show that gives the mass audiences the double crosses and rubouts they expect from a mob tale, but also psychotherapy and the dream analysis, economic and social satire, commentary on toxic masculinity and patriarchal oppression, and a rich intertextuality that positions the Sopranos against the history of cinematic and real gangsters and Italian-Americans and America. Pretty fucking good summary. Yeah. And that's to describe the pilot, which is considered to be like the worst episode of the season, which season one is considered to be the worst season of the show. Which I think dovetails nicely into the main reasons we're focusing on season one. Yeah, it's the bad season by virtue of that trailblazing originality. So this does give us some stuff that we can dunk on it for. People tend to like when we dunk on things. So but how, <laughs> how do you dunk on The Sopranos? How do you dunk on the fucking Mona Lisa of television? Uh, <laughs> she was busted. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know what that fucking smirks about. I like to laugh. Why is she, why is she hiding that fucking joke from me? Yeah, I think Chapo put it best. I'll quote them here because I really like the analogy that they've given for season one, which is that they are inventing prestige TV in real time. 
over the course of the season. There was nothing to base that concept off. I mean, there was a few few shows that came earlier, Twin Peaks, Oz, but nothing like The Sopranos, especially when it comes to the anti-hero archetype. But yeah, if you wanted a shorthand definition for what prestige TV is, it's TV that is considered high art, whether it considers itself high art or its critics consider it high art. Before this concept, there was this notion that TV was fluff. TV was there for you to watch commercials, to be a little reductive. And cinema was reserved for the movie theater. But thanks to The Sopranos, we have the prestige dramas from the 2000s and 2010s that we all know and love. And I do think that some of the tropes, like the sad male anti-hero tropes, we are starting to get away from them, which is probably good. It's getting a little tiring. But yeah, we don't get Mad Men or Breaking Bad or maybe even The Wire, because that didn't come out till 2002 without The Sopranos leading the charge in 1999 and following. Right. Yeah, because as good as Oz and uh, Twin Peaks are, nobody was watching those shows. You know, hipsters and yuppies were watching them, but not everybody the same way The Sopranos was. And we're living in in an era of television. They're calling it the golden age of television. (laughs) (laughs) And The Sopranos kicked off this era. And Mm -hmm. so this is probably like of everything we've talked about, at least when it comes to art, this is by far the most important, I think. Unless you disagree. Was was Gigli more important than this? (laughs) No, I was going to say, I think the golden age of television is over for what it's worth. I think it's it's done. It's It's never been more over. It's never been more over. (laughs) What was the killing moment for the golden age of television when Game of Thrones went sour or what? I think HBO still puts out some good TV, but they're the only ones, right? Whereas you used to have shit on Hulu and Netflix used to be part of the discussion of the golden age mm, of TV. And it's true. like, look, we have three, four, five different studios that are all putting out prestige drama, like whatever, fucking Handmaid's Tale on Hulu and Bojack on Netflix. And there was a brief moment where there were multiple studios that were all putting this out. But now it's just HBO, man. They're like the fucking, they're the Japanese soldiers on the island in the 1970s (laughs) holding out yeah and i think that netflix has given up the pretense of making prestige tv Mm -hmm. they started they were making the house of cards the orange is the new black and at this point i don't even think they're trying to make high art anymore it's like no 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 no. give give us the love on the spectrum give us the content slop yeah give us something that we can meme and see on social media for a couple weeks Mm -hmm. anyway very important and hopefully for the rest of the episode we won't just be saying it (laughs) we will be showing you why this is true. <laughs> Much like The Sopranos, we're going to take a show-don't-tell approach to this audio yeah. podcast. Chrissy, you got a show-don't-tell. You can't just be fucking making statements all the time without any fucking observations to back it up. <laughs> I don't know, Tone. I just thought providing specific examples from 13-hour-long episodes would be too difficult. <laughs> little thing called fucking imagery i can't do a tony soprano i'm gonna leave the impressions to you i know you need to like put your bottom teeth out farther that's like that's big, what that's i do that's a big yeah. part that's a big part of there the you impression. go yeah. yeah rich man and a poor man they got the same anniversary <laughs> okay yeah if, if the sopranos took place now do you think christopher moltisanti would want to be a podcaster instead of being a, a screenwriter <laughs> oh and that's for sure 100 percent. yeah what would chris's podcast be about he likes movies his movie review podcast yeah, right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, Tone. I've been listening to Truanon and I'm making a podcast about how 
the U.S. government worked with the mafia to keep communism out of the ports. <laughs> so how we're going to structure this episode. First, we're going to take this zoomed out, holistic view of the first season. Then I think we might do a quick little zooming in beat by beat of two particular episodes that we like if we have time. And then after that, we'll do our little closing thoughts, echoes in the culture. But for this zoomed out portion, I once listened to a film podcast that broke down and structured their whole pod based Based on the following six categories. Plot, characters, setting, themes, style, and technique. And I think The Sopranos is the goat because it crushes at all of these. So I figured we'll organize our episode along these lines. So starting mm-hmm. off with the least important one, starting off with the plot. If Breaking Bad's plot can be summarized in one sentence as high school math teacher, terminal cancer, deals math that he can support his family when he's gone, The Sopranos plot is essentially the gangster going to therapy. That's the one sentence summary of it. Because the crime and the gangsterism is not the most important part of the show. I love how the first episode of the second season is actually called Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office, which just, yeah, that is the show in one sentence. Wise Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office. (laughs) Yeah, the plot of the first season is not even about the crime. It's mostly about Tony's family life. And because it's still very 90s, they have these Monster of the Week episodes, like the X-Files, that don't move any kind of overarching plot forward but it's a self-contained little plot like the Italian mob gets involved in Jewish divorce court getting a get for a Hasidic couple but the plot doesn't really matter all that much in the same way that the plot very much matters for something like Breaking Bad which has almost zero rewatch value in my humble opinion exactly and the episodes of The Sopranos that are the least rewatchable tend to be the ones that focus on the plot the mob violence the power struggle and that stuff it's fine it's fine for a first time viewer i think it's why maybe it had a lot of commercial appeal but it's not what we want to talk about because if you've never seen the sopranos i will sum up broadly speaking what it's about tony is a mobster who's trying to balance his family with his capital f family the mafia Mm. and he has problems with his borderline personality disorder mother and after the death of the previous dawn he has a power struggle with his uncle for control of the new jersey mafia and he deals with rats and his crew and FBI indictments and his Gen X nephew who he's grooming to take over. And on the family side, he struggles with juggling his girlfriend and his wife, his suburban children, and his family's culpability in his crimes. And so The Sopranos is great, not because of this stuff, generally speaking. It's great because each episode can be enjoyed on its own as a standalone experience. And you can put on season three, episode six, and be blown away by everything that's just in that episode. One of the reasons why The Sopranos is so rewatchable is because each episode is a standalone exploration of a specific theme or idea. And in the same way that Curb Your Enthusiasm has this Rube Goldberg machine of plot occurrences where all the plots and small details contribute to the overall episode, that is how The Sopranos works with the episode's theme. And so David Chase has this incredible attention to detail where he's able to incorporate clothing, pop culture references, ephemera, mundane suburban chores, everything feeds towards the episodes A and B plots. And if I can jump in, this conscious attention to detail, it always has a goal in mind. It always has a purpose. Like in that quote you read from the Soprano sessions, they talk about the statue in Dr. Melfi's office, which is like, it's feminine. It could be an angel or it could be a demon. It's like the shot is like through the legs. So it's kind of like birthing. Imagery, or like taking a shit. Or taking a shit, going either way. Because Tony works in sanitation, but he also has all these mother issues and 
and his mom is this demonic female presence in his life and Dr. Melfi is like the opposite in every way. She's nurturing. And I would say, and I'm going to keep comparing The Sopranos to its inferior successors to really drive this point home. I remember people making a big deal about Mad Men, but the fact that they researched the 1960s train schedule at Grand Central Station to make sure it was period accurate. And that's fine. Cool, you abused a fucking intern to do train <laughs> research. But that is just a flex. That is just a dab. I don't think there's a lot of viewers who are like, oh, wow, I know the <laughs> 1960s Grand Central Station MTA schedules and they nailed it. It's not thematically important. Whereas The Sopranos has this craft. Everything matters fundamentally. I want to show off how they do this. And so what we do here is we have a cross section of the season and we have three episodes where I'm going to elucidate exactly how David Chase has done this in college, which is generally considered to be the best episode of the season. Boca, which is an average episode in the season. And A Hit is a Hit, which is generally considered to be the worst episode of the season. What? <laughs> Although not in my opinion. Yeah. I think the pilot is probably the worst episode of the season. Yeah. And so I'll walk through these three episodes and show you exactly what I mean when I say that every little detail and every plot threads together perfectly towards a point. So starting off with A Hit is a Hit, like I said, considered to be the worst. And there are certainly things that are bad in this episode, but I personally love this episode. So the A plot in A Hit is a Hit is that Adriana, who's Christopher's girlfriend, doesn't want to be a mob wife. She wants to be a music tastemaker. And so she tries to produce an album by her ex-boyfriend, Richie. But the band just isn't good enough. It doesn't have the essential quality that it needs to be a popular band. And then in the B plot, Tony is trying to be a yuppie. He's trying to join his upper middle class neighbors in playing golf and getting stock tips. But his oafishness and background are keeping him from fully integrating with this desired identity. And nothing ties these stories together plot wise. But thematically, both of these stories are about racial and class identity and trying to change your identity and how difficult that can be and the true nature of something and how things will always maybe have a true nature that cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, in the Adriana plot, she has this identity as this sort of bimbo as a mob wife, and she wants to change that to be like a music tastemaker. She wants to change her class, change her cultural persona, and how difficult that is for her in this episode. And then similarly, Tony has this identity as a mobster, and he wants to change that to be like a upper middle class yuppie, someone who gets stock tips and plays golf with doctors, and he struggles with that. And then Massive Genius, who's the <laughs> horrible rapper character from the episode, he's a gangster who also wants wants to be an intellectual. Mm -hmm. This is people's biggest complaint about the show, and I think it's completely warranted, is like, there's a rapper character in this episode who, it was clearly written by like a 50-year-old white man. Mm -hmm. It's like what your dad would write as a rapper. Mm -hmm. It's a rapper who says things like, the pen is mightier than the sword. <laughs> yeah. Or like, I do so love a good firearm in my hand. <laughs> talking like he's at a fucking renaissance fair <laughs> see i wish they would have gone all in and he was like a zoot suit wearing hepcat from the 40s <laughs> he's not that far off from that <laughs> yeah. 
He wears the top hat and the big suit. Yeah, it's what a suburban white middle-aged man imagines a rapper would look and talk like. And exactly. Also, there's clearly like some racial resentment too, because it's like the young people think this is cool. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like you're the original gangster in this episode for sure. There is some mention of how yeah the term gangster used to refer to people like Tony Soprano, and mm-hmm. now it's used for rappers. But so I've mentioned thematically how both of these plots seek to talk about the nature of like identity and class and race and how difficult it can be to change culture. And then small details within the episode. You can tell that anytime they needed to name a specific object, for example, Dr. Cusimano thanks Tony for a box of Cuban cigars at some point in the episode, right? Tony's able to get his yuppie neighbor excited about having this tiny piece of illicit material. And Cuban cigars are made more tantalizing because of their identity as being Cuban or Mm -hmm. illicit. Mm -hmm. Nobody can fucking tell the difference, right, between a Cuban cigar and anything else, right? Dominican, yeah, yeah. But because they have this marker of identity, it makes them more tantalizing. And that's Mm -hmm. what Tony is with this group. He starts playing golf with the doctors, and they all think of him as this zoo animal, right? Mm -hmm. And so choosing that Cuban cigar to mirror both Tony and Adriana is an example of the small details that the show puts in. Chris and, and Adriana are coming back from seeing Rent when they run into Massive Genius. What is Rent about? Rent is a a musical about race and class. Even little lines like at one point, Chris (laughs) turns to Tony and says, What do you want to do here, Hesh? I'm guided by you. He's got to do the right thing. That's what. Oh. And so even in that line, there's a specific reference to a Spike Lee movie, Do the Right Thing, Mm, that talks about racial and ethnic identity in New York City, specifically between black people and Italians. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fighting that the characters do over the racial totem pole that exists in America. Where do Italians fit in between Jews, black people, white people, Medigans? Yeah, another thing this show handles incredibly poorly. (laughs) This show unironically says, you know, America was built on anti-Italian racism, practically. This show, whatever the 1619 Project did for black people, this show is trying to do for Italian people, right? (laughs) Some of the most ham-fisted stuff has to do with the anti-Italian discrimination stuff, but we'll get to that maybe like a little bit later. Mm -hmm. I like that stuff, but it is a little stupid sometimes, especially when they relate it to other forms of discrimination. So did you have any more stray thoughts? Yeah, what you're talking about is the show pauses a kind of essentialism like an unchangeable essence within you Mm -hmm. and i think you see it also with the sopranos children this is something i saw on social media recently that in the nature versus nurture debate the sopranos comes down pretty firmly on nature or like i don't think it's all one or the other i don't think anyone thinks it's all one or the other but i think most people have like a percentage that they'd give like i would say i fall like 80 20 in favor of nurture largely and i think the sopranos is like 80 20 in favor of nature because the two Sopranos kids who have identical upbringings and parents and whatever come out in such radically different ways as the show goes on. In this episode, a hit is a hit. The title is a reference to what Haish says. He says he just, he hears it and he can't define what it is. This essential quality that exists and he can see it. Others Mm -hmm. can't. And you either have it or you don't. It's black or white. It's binary code and it can't be changed. You can't add it you can't take it away and i think that it's not just
just about the recording. It's about personality types. It's about who you are fundamentally. Yeah, that's very well said. And I think it's good to get back to the, the main point of the episode, which is that Adriana is trying to get her friend's band to make it big, but the music just isn't good enough. It doesn't have the essential quality that it needs to be perceived in the way that it wants to be. And the same is true for Tony in this episode. And what I love also about this is that, as you said with the Cuban cigars, everyone is a little bit tantalized by Tony. Like, at the end of the day, they don't want him that close, but they want him around. It's this contradiction in the nice, white, upper-class bourgeois morality. They are so comfortable and maybe bored that, yeah, they're tantalized by the violent gangster that they know is a gangster. But just to add to that point, I think it's a really good point because it does speak to what Soprano Sessions mentioned about the relationship between the artist and the audience because we have the same relationship with Tony Soprano, I think, Mm -hmm. which is to be tantalized and entertained by him at a distance. We are as complicit by our enjoyment as his family is Mm -hmm. (laughs) by their proximity. Exactly. Yeah, let's move on to Boca, where we also have expertly interwoven A plots and B plots. I love Boca because it's about a senior citizen eating pussy. What could be better than that? We talked about how the plots don't matter. There is some kind of gangster plot line in Boca that involves the feds closing in on them and who knows what. And what's funny is I had forgotten all of that, but I remembered Uncle Junior eating pussy, being embarrassed by it, and essentially him acting not in his own self-interest, humiliating his romantic partner and leaving her over the shame that he felt when the whole gang finds out that he performs oral sex. And this almost like comedy of manners question mark around this is what's stuck in my brain not Mm. the feds are closing in right yeah in terms of the season-long arc this episode is supposed to ratchet up tension between tony and his uncle there's a famous line at the end of the season that psychiatry and oral sex brought us to this (laughs) but you don't remember the episode that way as ratcheting up the tension between tony and uncle junior you just remember it for how good the individual plot is outside of its place in the season-long arc yeah and then the b plot involves tony's daughter meadow playing soccer and it's very idyllic and suburban all the new jersey gangsters daughters are playing on the soccer team and all the gangsters are there supporting women's soccer because they are allies (laughs) they fucking deserve to be paid the exact shame (laughs) (laughs) megan rapinoe is a hero in this house end of story (laughs) three fucking world cups how many do the men got Yes, but they eventually find out that the coach of the girls' soccer team has slept with one of the high school girls, and they are debating whether or not to take revenge. So what links these two plot lines together is, of course, like toxic masculinity and patriarchy, right? And every now and then you'll see some posts on the internet. It's like, you know, patriarchy actually really hurts men, too, because they feel like they have to perform and act in certain ways. And this episode is about that. Uncle Junior. <laughs> has a girlfriend that he likes that he's been going down to Boca Raton with for 16 years and when it's eventually revealed that he performs oral sex on her which they make clear that all of the gangsters do Carmela says Tony <laughs> does it once a year uh, <laughs> he humiliates this woman he shoves a pie in her face and says you're fired from the job she has and he regrets it immediately and will until he dies because uh, in later seasons he's under house arrest and he's like do I still have Bobby and it's like no mm-hmm. 
but go on. You were he's forced by societal pressure to humiliate this woman. And then with the B plot, the like weird <laughs> patriarchal toxic masculinity thing is first the gangsters are pissed because they hear this coach is leaving. He's gonna go to greener pastures and they try to bribe him with a stolen TV. They threaten him <laughs> by abducting his dog. <laughs> and then when they find out that he slept with one of the girls, they literally say they're thinking about castration and they're thinking about murder. Because it's you know, you touched one of my daughters. Sill's exact words are he put his dick in my little girl's soccer teammate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which is such a great combination of syllables. Like, yes. And yeah, it's it's clear that both Allie Vandermeer, who's the the woman who's sexually assaulted, and Meadow don't want the coach to be killed. Yes. That would be far more traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> but Tony still wants to kill him. And, and so do the other men that are fathers of people on the soccer team because they feel a masculine responsibility to do an honor killing. Yes. It's like the fucking Taliban, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i think these two plots are linked together both in their broad themes and by individual details in the episode and even the the attention to detail on the title is amazing right boca mm-hmm. is the name of the place that junior goes with his girlfriend boca raton but it's also spanish for mouth in an episode that's about oral sex and gossip and gossip right of course yes so you get the triple word play in the title which is exceptionally clever there's a scene where tony asks uh, a guy at a restaurant to take his hat off and then mm-hmm. forces him to, to, to do that because it's it's not polite. I always wondered where that fit into the plot, but of course it is the same idea as Uncle Junior when he finds out that people have been gossiping about him giving head or about the soccer coach, right? It's about you taking on the role of having to uphold the honor of the community yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I need to kill the soccer coach. I need to make the guy take his hat off. I need to humiliate the woman who humiliated me, right? It's about your role enforcing the codes of conduct of the community. So moving on to college, this is the best episode of the season, I think. I really wanted to have a contrarian view where I was like, actually, but I rewatched college and it's just so good. This is a great standalone episode. It could be a movie if it was a little bit longer, honestly. Everything happens in this episode. It's a great date episode too. If I ever want to preach the gospel of The Sopranos to someone who's never seen the show, I don't show them the pilot. I show them this episode. Mm. If you're a horny straight priest that wants to sleep with a married woman, this is a great date night movie. <laughs> yeah, this or um, Remains of the Day. Why don't you take us off on the on the A-plot, B-plot? Yeah, so the A-plot is about Tony taking his daughter Meadow to visit colleges up in New England and up in Maine. And while he's up there driving around, he sees a rat. And now he's juggling his fatherly duties, driving his daughter around, taking her to colleges, supporting her with his like honor-based mobster duties of trying to kill this guy. And it's this elaborate cat and mouse game, pardon the pun, where he needs to confirm that it really is who he saw. He's going around town. The target eventually realizes he's looking for him. They're going around. It's like very high tension and very good. And the A-plot also involves Tony and his daughter opening up to one another. It's about honesty and vulnerability and building that relationship all while he's doing this other stuff. I mean, my contrarian take Jordano on this episode, which is awesome, but I don't love the B-plot very much. I think it's kind of fucking boring. The priest comes over. Really? Yeah. Well, it, it fully spells out Carmela's thing which is that she feels a complicit with her husband's crimes right and to what extent she has brought that on her children which is a fairly important idea in the Sopranos also there is like a will they or won't they action between Carmela and the priest which I think is superficially a little bit tantalizing but it is the B plot for a reason it is the weaker of the two plots for sure yeah the family priest comes over 
and they have a, a no actual sex night, but it gets close. And the cheesy bit is like, she does confession. She says the thing that Giordano just said about her complicity. And the priest is like, let me give you communion. And it's like, she gets down on her knees and he puts the wafer on her tongue and it zooms in really closely. It's like, it's very on the nose. It's really on the nose. It's like, show, show me a fucking image of a train going into the tunnel while we're at it. You know? <laughs> it was 1998, okay? <laughs> and Father Phil, this is probably his most prominent season, but he, he's not a regular priest. He's a cool priest. Mm-hmm. He reads books on Buddhism yeah. and Islam. True. And he likes to joke around about movies. Yeah, so what links these two plots together? So I'll quote the Soprano sessions again here and say that the connections between the plot lines emerge organically via juxtaposition without excessive prompting. Whenever college seems to hand themes directly to the viewer, it does so in such a plain spoken way that they open up new avenues of interpretation rather than close off existing ones. Meadow and Tony's discussions about honesty, Carmela and Father Phil's conversations about sin, guilt, and spirituality, where both pairs ponder confidentiality and secrecy, refract off of each other and illuminate the series as a whole. And so this is my own take here, but like what I said earlier about A Hit is a Hit and Boca, like those are my takes. You can disagree, you can add, you, yours might be slightly different, but that is kind of the point about The Sopranos is that so much of it is open to interpretation and your own classification and that makes the show a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And so what I think this episode is doing is you have a lot of people in this episode who have taken oaths mm-hmm. and they're being tempted to break it and change. Carmela has taken a marriage oath to stay married to her husband who is a monster. Father Phil has taken a priest's oath to be celibate. Tony and Febby Petrullio have both taken oaths to the mafia. And Tony even makes an oath to his daughter in this episode to not lie. And so I've also seen other people say that this episode is about roles specifically and how difficult it can be to break from these roles that we are meant to play. Tony is the father, but also the gangster. Febby is the gangster, but also the travel agent. Father Phil is a priest, but also a straight man, you know? Yeah. One of the things I love about this episode is it's about the father-daughter relationship in so many ways. Is why the A-plot is stronger. So the opening conversation is Meadow asking Tony outright, are you in the mob? Yeah, definitely the most iconic scene from the episode. The one that's been memed the most is the, are, are you in the mafia? Yeah. And Tony somehow doesn't have an answer ready. He literally says, there is no mafia at one point. <laughs> no, at first he says, it's a stereotype and it's exactly the type of thing I'm trying to teach you guys not to do. Mm-hmm. And then follows that up after a beat with, there is no mafia. <laughs> yeah. Which, like, oh, one of the things I love about the show is that we don't get enough protagonists that aren't very smart. And Tony is great because he's not very smart and he thinks he is, which is just a mm-hmm. recipe for comedy. Because he is the cleverest mobster and mm-hmm. they're all even dumber than he is. <laughs> he did a semester and a half at Seton Hall and he, so therefore he is the smartest mobster. Yeah, it's, it's so funny to see the guy who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and he is because everyone else is a moron. (laughs) But in this conversation, in the early part of the episode, they both confide in one another. They trust and are vulnerable, where Tony says, like, yeah, he is in the mob, essentially. And Meadow admits to doing speed to help study for the SATs. And it's like, you know, Meadow and Tony have this much better relationship than Meadow and Carmela because mothers and daughters are natural enemies. And (laughs) by the end of the episode, when Tony shifts from dad mode to gangster mode, he's lying to her left and right consistently and confidently after he promised to 
be honest with her, right? And it's how the episode is bookended, where he immediately has a lie ready for like, why are your shoes muddy? Where were you? It's about how, yes, the gangster part in the course of one hour has just totally severed this relationship of trust and vulnerability that we had at the start of the episode. Yes. And we should mention that Tony in this episode does kill someone with his bare hands. Yes. He garrots him. And this was a really big step for television, right? Protagonists in a TV show, they don't kill someone with their bare hands. There hasn't been any deaths like this on the show so far. And Tony revels in it. He's happy Mm -hmm. chasing this guy down. He seems to really enjoy killing. He doesn't even have to do it. Chris offers to do it for him. Mm -hmm. And the actual death scene takes a very long time. I want to say like a minute. And he is spitting out of his mouth while he does it. He really is a monster while he kills Fabi. He's sweating. He's panting. He's got the teeth out of his mouth like a carnivore. And David Chase really wanted to make a point. And obviously he he received a lot of pushback from HBO even about the scene. They were like, dude, you we got to talk about this scene. It's like Tony can't kill him. Protagonist means good guy, the network executive said. (laughs) So even though Twin Peaks was making television that seemed like movies seven years before or whatever, Twin Peaks doesn't have an antihero and neither does Oz. And this is something that The Sopranos uniquely kicked off with this episode specifically. I've watched this episode with a lot of people and they've been really sad after they watched it. They did not want Tony to kill this person. And I think that especially in 1998, a lot of the audience did not want Tony to kill this guy. 1999, sorry, it's filmed in 1998, published in 1999. So in 1999, people didn't want Tony to kill this guy, but David Chase does it anyway because he has artistic integrity and he understood the relationship between the audience and the artist. And it wasn't going to do the Clegane Bowl. You know, David Chase is not about searching Reddit for the best uh, suggestions. (laughs) Yeah, he's a fucking gangster. What do you expect? And he lets you down because like you said, it's important that he's a family man. He makes this promise to his daughter. And then what's he doing at the end? He's lying to her half a dozen times in in a row, gaslights her, says, what the fuck do you think happened? Mm -hmm. He always puts the onus on the other person to say it, to say, Mm -hmm. I think you killed someone because it's so far-fetched that he makes you do it. And then in the Carmela storyline, I've always thought it was very funny because Father Phil obviously is a Catholic priest and, and can't have sex. And so has this want and desire to feel love with with a human woman that will always be there and torments him. And then like Carmela has this want to talk about movies with a guy. <laughs> but obviously she can't do that with Tony. And so they both have this unrequited desire with each other that they're using uh, as a stand in for their their actual partner. You don't think she's a little bit flirty with the priest on purpose? When he rings the doorbell, she pretties herself up a little bit. Of course. Yeah, because she doesn't get it from Tony, right? She doesn't get romance or any of the things she actually wants from Tony. Nice. So just some of the small details in this episode that I want to do a show don't tell again that show that the small details feed into the larger themes that the episode is going with. So for example, they watch Remains of the Day, which is about two servants who struggle with their roles and oaths so much Mm. that they can't love each other. And then they also talk about The Last Temptation of Christ, the movie, and Father Phil says, you know, Robert De Niro was originally supposed to play Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think that Carmela responds, it would have been a totally different movie that speaks to this idea of roles. And, you know, if you change the person, then you're completely changing everything and and how difficult it is.
is to just sub people out. And then little details too, like AJ is supposed to make eggs for his mother. Eggs, by the way, reoccurring imagery in The Sopranos, but he brings her an uncooked egg. And what is AJ but sort of an undercooked egg, right? He looks like a fucking egg, let me tell you. That's an ugly <laughs> See, child. He is egg-shaped. <laughs> I think we should move along. Yeah. yeah, if there's enough fan feedback, I have no issue doing an episode on college. So if you want that, leave a comment. Okay, so we talked about the plot of The Sopranos and then how these the plots... Style. The, the mm-hmm. style. The style. Let's talk a little bit about the setting, because it is contemporary New Jersey, baby. I fucking love this decision, right? Because there's a long history of gangster movies, but they're almost always all set in New York. But here, mm-hmm. we've gone across the river. We've gone west. It's like mimicking the actual movement of Americans over the 20th century out of the big crowded cities and into the suburbs, right? Tony Soprano lives in a McMansion. And I think that that says so much about him. What is the McMansion? It's expensive. It's kind of tacky. And it's really soulless. It's a house for someone who doesn't really have their own tastes. They just get what is expensive and show-offy and what have and, you. And big. And yeah. big, right? Tony's mm-hmm. a big guy. <laughs> <laughs> McMansions will have Greek columns with a, a German-style roof. It's just like a total blend of aesthetics. But it, it's big enough that people can call it a mansion mm-hmm. without having any taste associated with new money. Yeah, New Jersey is is perfectly American because it's not the romanticized New York City or Brooklyn. It's Americans who have moved to the suburbs, who have moved west, and in that action become more American than people who arrived uh, in Little Italy or in Ellis Island. And it's also set in the present, which mm-hmm. is actually surprisingly rare for mob movies. You look mm-hmm. at something like Goodfellas, you look at Casino, they're all set in the past. A Bronx Tale, it gives them an innate sense of rose-colored glasses and nostalgia when you mm-hmm. set something in the 60s or 70s. And by setting it in the present, The Sopranos takes on a tone of not romanticizing the mafia. Tony is is a fat fucking crook who doesn't care about the oaths or... Or rituals. or Rituals or the romance of the, the mafia. And I love how much the characters themselves are aware of the canon of gangster cinema. The priest asks which is Tony's favorite Godfather movie. They're aware <laughs> of the canon of gangster films that they're living in. So the show is the show is quite self-aware. Oh, absolutely. The second episode of the show ever, which is kind of the first real episode in some ways, the cold open is them having a discussion about the Godfather, you know, where Syl does his horrible Al Pacino impression. So, cheer me up, babe. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Huh? Zeppuccino, Zeppuccino. Followed by a discussion about cloning. And so it's like, why are they talking about cloning and doing impressions of The Godfather? They're making reference to the fact that they are influenced and a clone of an existing genre and their own place in it. I also love with the New Jersey setting, they do give you a pretty big diversity of settings because we have our domestic space with the McMansion that's in like a wooded area of North Jersey. But every now and then you'll take a trip down to Newark and you'll see like the desiccated downtown area, Mm -hmm. urban blight. You see a lot of highways. You see a lot of suburban sprawl. Every now and then they go to New York as well. That's like a fancy, nice little trip. And this show is imbued with the qualities of New York and New Jersey. So they cast only Italian-American actors from the New York area for this show. There are very few exceptions. There are a couple where they couldn't find anyone, like Robert Eiler and Nancy Marchand. But for the most part, these are all people from community theater in New York City. It was cast because Steve Buscemi made a movie called Trees Lounge 
David Chase liked the casting of that movie and went out and found the casting director for it. When you hear about Edie Falco or Michael Imperioli talk about the early days of the show, they just talked about how a lot of them knew each other because they had acted in the same independent films in the New York area. Mm. And the people that they have in the show, people like Polly, Tony Sirico, I mean, you can't have an actor play that role. Only Tony Sirico can play that role because he is that guy. He is the ex-con gangster who has that accent, right? Try and do a Polly accent. I've been trying for 15 years. Nobody can do it. <laughs> Tony Sirico, like he puts his hands in front of his body like that because he's been to prison where you need to have your hands in front of you at all times, just in case. It has such a perfectly New York quality. A lot of the actors were just regular people. Patsy Parisi is a, a college teacher for uh, computer science. Ginny wow. Sacramoni was a legal assistant. A lot of these actors were just people off the street. They fit the look, right? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't have a Hollywood feel to it. It's filmed in New York City. It's filmed in Silver Cup Studios in Queens. It is truly like an authentic New York area show. I ate shit at Pub Trivia once because they said, uh, what borough was The Sopranos filmed in? And I, I guess Staten Island because it's the most Jersey-like, <laughs> but it's actually filmed in Queens. You can see it. It's right under the Queensboro Bridge when you drive over the Queensboro Bridge, Silver Cup Studios. The first episode was filmed on location, actually, oh, nice. which is why the pork store looks different. And yeah, that's a, just another thing that makes The Sopranos so unique is its setting. Okay, so we've talked about plot, style, setting. Let's turn to our characters. There will be some that we blitz over because we're going to return to this. There are some characters that overwhelmingly appear in the first season, or one character in particular that we need to talk about. But let's start off with the man himself, Tony Soprano, the role that killed James Gandolfini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, James Gandolfini is Tony Soprano in my mind. There is no difference about him. This is the role that I heard he hated playing this character. It made him a worse person. Playing this mean, violent, sociopathic, what's the word I'm looking for? Corpulent. <laughs> like, he's constantly <laughs> eating all the time. Yeah, there is a famous story. People don't eat on movie sets because they need to take it so many times that it's not possible. But James Gandolfini constantly on the first or second take, the prop people would need to bring more food because he would <laughs> actually be eating. If you ever watch TV, they chew a lot, they never swallow mm -hmm. because you spit it out. Yeah. But he would just eat all this food and it shows by the end of the series because he's doubled in weight. Yeah, yeah but apparently psychologically it really affected him playing this role because Tony's such a monster. Yeah, he's a monster, but he, this is a sophisticated show. He's not a fucking mustache twirling woman <laughs> tying to railroads guy. <laughs> he's a guy who at least says that he wants to be a good father and provider. He's a guy who he's the smartest of the dumb guys, which I'll say from an ACAB perspective, if the mob is this dumb, what's to say about the police officers? I'm just saying. <laughs> he's also just, I think, emotionally dumb. He lacks introspection to see what he actually wants. That's, I mean, like, that's part of doing the work of going to therapy or whatever. But it's really funny in those therapy scenes when you see Dr. Melfi ask him the most basic probing questions about his feelings and how did that make you feel? And he just doesn't have the emotional intellectual toolkit to answer this very, very basic question. Yeah, what else is there to say about Tony? I mean, he eats all the time, constantly eating gabagool. I bring up Tony's eating habits, his love of gabagool, his general corpulence, not because I'm just trying to make some kind of fat phobic joke or something of that nature, but because I think The Sopranos uses all of these things to help characterize 
surprise Tony. He is an insatiable belly. He is constantly eating. He's frequently drinking, frequently fucking. He is that impulse side of the human mind, right? He is id. And I think that it is in such stark contrast to his self-perception. Tony thinks that he's the cleverest guy in the room. He thinks he's smarter than the other gangsters, when in reality, he is not the scheming super ego that he thinks he is. He is the insatiable belly. And you know, this is the first season, so this is Tony at his most cartoonishly charismatic. He's just doing his little crimes with his little friends. They're running around. And I think that David Chase recognized that people were taking Tony in in a way that he didn't intend it. It's like people watching The Colbert Report and being like, yeah, that guy's got a good idea about politics. I don't know how you can watch The Sopranos and be like, Tony's the fucking boss. He's mm-hmm. who I would be. It is like watching The Colbert Report and being like, this guy has a lot of salient points, you know? <laughs> and he's eventually made into a bigger and bigger monster, but in season one, he's very much in the shenanigans era of the show. <laughs> David Chase talks a lot about how difficult change is, and Sopranos often gets this label as being a show about how change is impossible. Mm-hmm. And I have heard David Chase disagree and say that change is possible, but only with a lot of work and only in very small incremental amounts. And so we do see this with Tony somewhat where, you know, his dad is a gangster and Tony's a gangster too, of course, but his dad also introduces Tony to the life, which is something that's brought up in college. And so the fact that Tony is just as bad of a person as his father, but explicitly keeps his children away from it is at least an incremental generational improvement between Tony's father and himself. Mm -hmm. And then AJ, while being a fail son, is at least not a violent criminal. And Mm -hmm. so over these three generations, there are incremental improvements to the Soprano family, even though on the surface, it looks like they're just as shitty as the last one. Since you mentioned Tony's father, this might be a good place to mention Tony's mother, Livia, who has most of her screen time in this season. She's one of the main drivers of the plot, but is also super important for Tony's character. So Tony has this abusive mother, Livia, that he really can't figure out his own feelings towards. She is the cause of the panic attacks that start sending him to therapy. Mm -hmm. When we first meet her, she's getting a little frailer and she's living in the home that she raised Tony in and she has to be put in a home. Green Grove is a retirement community and it's more like a hotel at Captain Teebs. And she is one of the meanest, most self-centered, passive-aggressive old people you will ever encounter on screen. And we learn that she's been like this her whole life, that she's just wasn't fit for motherhood. She is a black hole of pessimism, anxiety, and emotional manipulation. Mm -hmm. David Chase famously has said that this is inspired by his own mother, right? He has the same feelings, and this is probably the most inspired part of the show because Tony's conflict with his mother feels very distinct to this show and very unique. It's what separates it from all the other mob media. And Tony, as an Italian-American man, someone who worships the Madonna, (laughs) cannot think of his mother as a bad person. It doesn't occur to him until he goes to therapy that his mother might be unfair to him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you're supposed to love your mother. That is the role you're supposed to play. And David Chase has said that this is obviously inspired by his mother and that when he casted for the role, 200 Italian women came in to audition for the mother and they were all doing this like Italian mama thing. Oh, Tony, how could you put me in a home? Yeah, you know? marinara face. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
And then Nancy Marchand came in and channeled his mother. He said it was so freaky that she was able to do this. He even called his sisters down to the studio and they were like, holy shit, she is channeling mom. And Nancy Marchand got the role, even though she's not Italian. And she even said, I trust this monster that I'm playing is now deceased. And he had to tell her like, yes, don't worry, she's dead. (laughs) But she is an incredibly inspired character. And I think that we all maybe know someone in our own lives who behaves a little bit like Olivia sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like every old person I've ever met. (laughs) My contrarian take is that the old people are irritating. We young people all torpedoed our lives during COVID for them. And I haven't heard a lot of gratitude coming from them. (laughs) They are collectively, as a block, all Olivia Sopranos. Yeah, it is funny how sometimes you get that fire for family and duty where you're like, I need to call my older relative, you know, and get some of their wisdom. And then inevitably you call your older relative and it's like, I'm at the Target and you wouldn't believe I'm the only non-minority here. (laughs) It's like, I'm so glad I called to hear about this wisdom. Yep, yep. If there is an epidemic of senior citizen loneliness, I think it's actually their fault. (laughs) Maybe they wouldn't be so lonely if they weren't so rude, mean, racist, selfish, homophobic, homophobic. Yeah, just generally unpleasant. Yeah, so that's Livia. Tony could never succeed with her. There's nothing he could do correctly. And so he puts her in a very expensive retirement community slash nursing home. I would say what there's to say is that if there's one overarching plot of this season one, yeah, there's whatever the gangster plot and the conflict between Junior and Tony. But at the start of the season, we see Tony trying to connect to his mother. He brings her a CD player with the music she likes. He tries to awkwardly dance with her in her house. And by the end of the season, we see him try to kill her with a pillow. (laughs) Don't go to therapy, everyone. This is what happens. Season one is about his changing feelings towards his mother through therapy. And of course, this is tied with the junior conflict because eventually Livia does put out a hit on Tony towards the end. She puts out multiple. She encourages Junior to. She encourages Artie to as well. And we find out in this season sort of through Melfi that Livia has borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. The show is also always great at picking things that would become super culturally relevant 10, 20 years later. And so ADD, therapy, mental health, depression, borderline personality. It's it's very funny to imagine Livia as a BPD art hoe. Livia, had she been 20 years old now, she would definitely be like a Red Scare listener, (laughs) I think, for sure. What the fuck? She has BPD? My mother never tried to dye her hair blue, ever. (laughs) Tony, I've decided to be bisexual and eat hot chip. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. No, ma! Stop listening to Anna and Dasha, Ma. Anorexia is not good for you. You can't handle me at my worst, then you don't deserve me at my best. There you go. She didn't even fucking say that, Ma. Ma, I want you to get off Tumblr and go outside. Ma, the fringe looks terrible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Olivia gets a fringe haircut. Okay, so to what extent should we even talk about Chrissy and Carmella? Yeah, they don't have a lot to do. Because we'll get a chance to talk about them in season two. Yeah. Trust me, there's a lot to say about Christopher. I think he's a fantastic character. But we, yeah. we still got to get to themes. And we hey, you got six more of these episodes coming yeah. at some point. Yeah. So We'll just say quickly, the other main character is Christopher, who is Tony's cousin slash nephew. He's actually one, but they call each other the other. And he's like the fucking Jesse to Tony's Walt, right? Mm-hmm. Young protege mentor. We'll talk more about him in season 
season two. Then you got Carmela, who also has an excellent Italian-American North Jersey accent. Carmela is his wife. Edie Falco is also the best actor on the show. What? Far, I think. That's, yeah. that's a hot take. Yeah. You don't think it's James Gandolfini? I think James Gandolfini was really good at playing Tony Soprano. Mm-hmm. But I think that Edie Falco, first of all, she's played a bunch of other roles really well. And she famously would have this emotional scene where she would have to break down crying like the one with Father Phil. And mm-hmm. she could do that 10, 12, 14 times in a row. And in every director's commentary I've ever watched, The Sopranos were like, I've never worked with an actor like that who could mm-hmm. just do that over and over and over again. Wow. She's really, really good. Wow. And yeah, she she had other hit shows like Nurse Jackie. And I think she was in Avatar too. Oh, nice. So yeah, we'll do our deeper dive on the other characters as we continue through our Sopranos series. So let's turn to our themes. We're not going to do every theme of The Sopranos because we're limiting our scope to season one. So here are some of the big ones, which we have already talked about a lot. But why don't we start off with masculinity, both toxic and patriarchal. Toxic masculinity. I mean, talk about one more thing that The Sopranos got into in depth 15 years before it became a buzzword, Mm -hmm. right? Like therapy. Just its ability to see culture 15 years down the road is one of its greatest aspects, I think, because it means that it's still relevant 25 years later. Yeah, because men didn't improve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we talked a lot about Boca already, which was explicitly about toxic masculinity, but there's another episode this season, The Legend of Tennessee Maltesanti, which is about Chris unable to express his feelings Mm -hmm. to Tony, and Tony and him have to have this very awkward conversation about suicide Mm -hmm. and how difficult it can be for men to admit to each other that they are sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and I think one of the things that the show does so great is that it doesn't get fucking preachy. It's showing a phenomenon. Here are two men who are both depressed and possibly doing suicidal ideation. They're like literally blood relatives, a mentor figure, and they can't even say the word suicide in their conversation. It's like, hey, you ever think about, uh, and then he gestures like a gun to Mm -hmm. the temple or whatever, right? Yeah. It shows that. And Chris immediately says, fuck no. And then they both have to take a moment and make fun of those people who commit suicide. (laughs) Imagine that, fucking blowing your brains out. (laughs) Anytime they show a moment of vulnerability, it needs to be followed up with an attack Mm -hmm. on the type of person who would show that vulnerability. Chris does the same thing in A Hit Is A Hit when he begins to talk about his artistic aspirations and then has to racially insult everybody in the hamburger shop. And yeah, it's not like not like the fucking Gillette ad, which is like <laughs> preaching at you. That's a really great way to put it, is it never preaches to you what the correct way to act is. It only shows you a bad way to act and then makes you laugh at their behavior, mm-hmm. which is so much better than preaching, is to be like, isn't it funny how we're kind of shitty this way? Yeah, yeah. The show also, because we have all these characters who are essentially normies, who are not gangsters, like through the Dr. Melfi or the priest or anytime Tony engages with the yuppies or or Artie Bucco, right? Who's the chef whose wife doesn't want him to get close to Tony, wants him to keep his hands clean. We have all this cast of normie characters who also get to sound off in Boca. Even Artie Bucco is like, we need to fucking kill. We need to kill the coach who did the statutory rape. We can't go to the police. It shows you that this aggressive, violent, toxic, masculine id is not limited to our gangsters. It's there in the Artie Bucco's of the world also. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so yeah, we'll move on because we got a lot of themes here to cover, but one of the main things that The Sopranos is about is American decline. Yes. The very first sentence of the series is, I'm starting to think that I came in at the end of something. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. I came too late for that. I know. But lately, I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end. The best 
podcast is over. You know what Dr. Melfi <laughs> says? Many Americans feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. They were saying that in the late 90s. Right. Yeah. The height of American material conditions in some ways. It's only gotten worse since then <laughs> in terms of affordability when it comes to like housing and stuff like that. And the way that they talk about American decline is usually to use the mafia as a metaphor. So they talk about the decline of the mafia as a stand-in for American society at large. But Tony in many ways is richer than his father and yet he feels worse off than ever yep. than anyone. Yeah, when Tony says what he's jealous of, of his father, he says he's jealous of his people and his pride. And if we were to translate from moron mobster into <laughs> therapy speak, people is social connection, which Tony lacks. He lacks social connection to his own mother, to his family really because of his double life, to his friends in the mob, and the pride that his father felt would be something like meaning, you could say. I don't think Tony thinks that the mob life is meaningful. He kind of just does it because of inertia, because he was thrust into it by his father, because it's just what he was expected to do. Yeah, he's become too American mm -hmm. to really be happy. Like, Tony's father had the community of other Italian people who could support this criminal structure, right, mm -hmm. socially, and he doesn't have that, mm -hmm. and it makes him sad. And the Italian mafia is pretty unique in the way that it's romanticized. It's probably one of the only gangs that people think of fondly, and I think that it's because of how the Sicilian society was, like, inherently tribal, and it doesn't work in America after three generations. The reason it can still work in Sicily is because of a cultural component that by the time you move to Jersey and you're eating Lincoln Log sandwiches, your society has lost. Mm -hmm. It made me think of the speech from Robert Loggia, where he describes what it was like growing up in Staten Island in the 40s. And he talks about the rituals and how happy everybody was in this Italian community. He claims he didn't know he was American until he was like 12 years old mm. <laughs> because everybody in Staten Island was Italian. <laughs> When the whole family would gather at Grandma's house, there were tables full of food, homemade wine, raviolis, and music. Women in the kitchen with their holiday aprons on. Men in the living room and kids, kids everywhere. I must have a thousand cousins, first cousins, second cousins. My grandma would sit in the middle of all of this and smile, her dark eyes twinkling, surveying her domain. Then he talks about like, in the 70s, his grandparents die and like, suddenly they're getting together less and they're not going to church as often and they're not getting together for dinner. And now he's kind of just an American. I think the exact words he uses was that his grandparents were Italian, his parents were Italian-American, and he's an American-Italian mm. and his kids are American. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking while listening to this speech, I'm like, oh, this sounds like a really great life. No one is stopping you from doing those things. Nobody is stopping you from getting together with your extended family every Sunday for Sunday gravy and dinner. I think the only thing that ends up stopping you is that you become American. You develop a disdain for your relatives and <laughs> require privacy and alone time. And acquisition of goods. Exactly. exactly. acquisition of goods. Yeah, also, yeah, that idyllic view was dependent on the unpaid work of many, many women. A lot of no-nos <laughs> and wives. 
Right. I don't know. I would play devil's advocate a little bit and say there are some things that are preventing that from happening. Like Americans work more than they used to, more hours, and they have much more precarity. They work longer hours and the jobs that they work are shittier in terms of their pay and benefits. So you're right. It's not impossible. But I do feel like there are more hurdles than there used to be. Or like the fact mm-hmm. that everyone needs to move for work now. Families can get scattered across the country. Yeah. Was there anything else explicitly about American decline in the first season? I would say not as much. This is really something that will prop up later a lot more but yeah obviously accentuated in that first episode and specifically i think david chase has actually said that if he were to be forced to sum up the show in a single sentence he would sum it up as a show about trying to find happiness in american consumerism mm. that's what he was going for yeah so another theme is generational conflict this is very much a boomer show mm-hmm. right tony soprano is a baby boomer most of the music in the show is baby boomer music and And it very much has all the qualities of someone who grew up in the 50s and 60s. And what's so funny is that James Gandolfini is on the younger end of the boomer spectrum. Uh, This is something the Soprano Sessions pointed out. When he tries to sing a song and dance with Carmela, it's uh, Procol Harum's A Whiter Shade of Pale, which he would have been six years old when it came out, right? Like, not from (laughs) Mm -hmm. his actual formative years, but from his childhood. This guy, an aspirational baby boomer. He wants to be boomer. (laughs) Boomerer. (laughs) And so, yeah, there's a lot of conflict between Tony and his uncle Junior, who's, you know, a greatest generation member. And so Tony's need for consumption seems to be much higher than Uncle Junior, who still lives in the house in the old neighborhood in Newark that he grew up in, despite being a mafia boss. Tony has taken this need to buy the giant suburban SUV in the big mansion in the suburbs and send his kids to private school. Like Tony embodies that sense of baby boomer consumerism. And he's got the selfishness and the narcissism of a boomer as well. And he does doesn't just have conflicts with Junior. He also butts heads with Chrissy sometimes, who I think is the most millennial of the. Or would you say he's millennial or Gen X? Yeah, I mean he's he's a younger he's a Gen X person technically, mm-hmm. but I guess he, he has all the qualities of a young person, mm-hmm. right? Which is that he wants to be in show business. He would have a podcast if he was uh, the, around today for sure. He has existential angst in the same way that like, a lot of baby boomers don't seem to experience that much existential angst. Chris is always worried about like what's his arc. What's What's his life story going to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, all these characters have just totally different outlooks on life. And then it leads to emotional conflicts between them. And then within the first season, like quite literal control of the mob conflicts between Junior and Tony. Mm-hmm. It is all wrapped up in this soup of emotions and slights and whatnot. Like a line from an episode we didn't talk about, but Uncle Junior says when he wants Tony to do something, he reminds him that he used to play catch with him or whatever the fuck, right? You can't separate the family from the business at all and so yeah this generational conflict bleeds into the control of the mob storyline next up we have class another overarching theme of the sopranos yes and i love lots of gangster art does this but this notion that gangsterism is the purest form of capitalism it is the pursuit of profit right they just break the rules because the rules are arbitrary they like return on investment and the gangster is just more honest about the use of violence right we can we can drop that wire line you're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city you are a parasite who leeches off just like you culture of drugs excuse me what i got the shotgun got the briefcase it's on the game though right but yeah, the thing about class is 
we already kind of said this with the hit is a hit is that there are still barriers there are cultural barriers that are surrounded like bourgeois morality is going to prevent tony from fully integrating into an upper class society even if he has all the money he will always be a kind of classless nouveau riche because of his job as gangster yeah hit is hit is probably the best example in the first season of that where he's trying to be a guy who goes golfing and gets insider information on stocks but his cultural signifiers means that he as much money as he acquires he will never be considered upper class so in the episode i think it's in boca he's at a fancy restaurant and he sees some like we weren't saying it yet but a guy who looks like a tech bro right who's in the fancy restaurant wearing a baseball cap and tony soprano gets up and insists because of his weird propriety code that this kid takes off the baseball cap and the other like old money riche are happy the waiter's happy that he did it but tony can't be like a nouveau riche tech bro today he can't wear the fucking patagonia vest to the office or whatever you know (laughs) he can't be like who gives a shit i'm rich as fuck i'm gonna dress and act how i want he still has this urge this desire he's too i guess frank sinatra pilled that he needs to have these weird and archaic rules like he dresses up in a suit when he goes out for dinner and he insists that you take your hat off and like yeah whatever happened to the strong silent type like gary cooper yeah yeah so the sopranos has many many episodes about ethnic identity and it's probably the theme that it handles the most clumsily but (laughs) i always enjoy them people say that christopher is the worst episode of the show but i think it's a fine episode same with the hit is a hit here where it talks a lot about italians and their place in white society because they became white in the post-war period and they juggle a lot with what does that mean for italians today and david chase has said that david chase wrote for rockford files Mm -hmm. before he made the sopranos and they could never name a gangster an italian name because Mm. they would get a bunch of letters from like the sons of italy because they portrayed italian americans badly and so he saw this coming with the sopranos and made a lot of episodes about these nerd ass fucking italians who would be like you're not allowed to do that remember the reaction that jersey shore got and of course the sopranos got as well which was like this is an unfair portrayal of the italian people less than a tenth of a percent of us are involved in organized crime (laughs) and it does talk about how you can have this romanticized subculture and not have it be an endorsement yeah i find that rhetoric so fucking annoying i got in trouble in the workplace one time because i said the most eye-rolly bit of the first season of sopranos is tony soprano talking about all of the brutal anti-italian racism that he and his family have undergone and this italian american (laughs) professor (laughs) said like ben how dare you how dare you deny anti-italian racism did you know that we were interned I looked up the numbers. There's like under 900 people got interned. Under 900 (laughs) Italians got interned in like the Second World War in Canada, where this person was from. Whereas over 90% of all of the Japanese people in America got interned. And yeah, they of course used the phrase that Italian Americans love to say, which is, you know, we weren't always white. And like, if anyone ever says this to you, what you need to say is like, yes, but you weren't black either, right? (laughs) Uh, I don't think your neighborhoods were ever redlined. I don't think there was ever mass lynchings race riots etc etc targeting italians so we'll we'll definitely be back to this subject later but italians positions on the ethnic totem pole is is definitely a a theme that they like to go back to at least once or twice a season and yeah their place on the totem pole is obviously pretty high
AI in that they can just act white if they want to. But much like Hesh, Hesh is white until a black person calls him white. Then he's Jewish. Mm. So echoes in the culture. Yeah. So I'll actually start us off here because this echoes in the culture is part of the explanation for why I haven't seen The Sopranos to the end of the show. Giordano has shamed me for many, many years, but it has not successfully motivated me to watch the show. And part of that is because I have watched so many of The Sopranos' spiritual successors. I watched all of Breaking Bad. I watched most of Mad Men. I watched most of BoJack Horseman. I watched most of Boardwalk Empire. I watched a bunch of even shittier anti-hero shows. I don't know if anyone else watched Boss on Stars starring <laughs> Kelsey Grammer, but I watched, I think, most of the first season of Boss when I was in college. But mm-hmm. my point is this. I've watched so much photocopy of a photocopy of The Sopranos that when I watch it, it seems incredibly familiar, at least superficially. So that's part of why I've really struggled to sit down and watch the whole thing. Right. Um, you also just don't like Italians, I think. <laughs> <laughs> false. False. Which is hilarious because you've surrounded yourself with Italians for most of your life. Yeah, I love Italians. Well, yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't like Italian America. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen Goodfellas or Casino? Yes, I have. Oh, okay. And what was your opinion on them? They're, they're good. Okay. <laughs> they are good. Yeah. yeah. But I think if you want to talk about the echoes of the cultures for Sopranos, I think the one sentence summary is that this made TV serious. It made it like serious art, not just the stuff between commercials. It meant that other showrunners could take swings and take risks. Yeah, you could put more on TV. You could put more challenging stories. You could put more complex characters. You could challenge your viewers generally. All of that is thanks to The Sopranos. Absolutely. It raised the bar mm-hmm. and showed you that you could have an episode that intertwined the A plots and the, and the B plot and every detail inside and, and shot it cinematically. He invited directors on and he got a sense for which ones got what he was trying to do, which was make this look like a movie, like mm-hmm. a good movie. Yeah. There are no music swells in The Sopranos to tell you when to feel a certain emotion. Take a note, Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> he had a rule against moving cameras so that there's no like zooming in to accentuate a particular reaction. It doesn't spoon feed you. Mm. And The Sopranos obviously spiritually is the uh, the godfather, if you will, to all of these other shows that came after it, the Breaking Bads, the Shields, you know, whatever, the, the anti-hero shows. But The Sopranos is also the blood relative of Mad Men and Boardwalk Empire. Mad Men, by the way, is my second favorite show of all time. It's created by Matthew Weiner, who worked on The Sopranos. He was one of David Chase's right-hand guys in the last couple seasons. And Boardwalk Empire is made by Terrence Winter, of course, who was a longtime writer on The Sopranos. And so The Sopranos directly birthed these two shows. Mm-hmm. And I think that they both inherited a specific quality of The Sopranos. Boardwalk Empire I don't like as much. And I think that it inherited the superficial elements of The Sopranos, the actual gangster plots, mm-hmm. right? What it means to be a gangster. Nucky Thompson's specific struggle is how to be a half gangster, mm-hmm. right? Which is obviously something that Tony deals with. And that stuff is fine. I don't know. It's I've never had a great urge to rewatch it. But Mad Men inherited all of the subtextual elements from The Sopranos, right? American consumerism, family obligations 
conversation, bigger ideas about what The Sopranos was trying to say. Gender roles, yeah. Gender roles, right. And I think it was a much better show for it. Yeah, I, yeah. so I came up with this punk music analogy, which is everyone talks about 1977 as the punk year, right? Where punk really exploded and got bigger and more mainstream. And The Sopranos is the clash in the punk oeuvre. The clash, or maybe, maybe the Sex Pistols, but you also have people who love to talk about proto-punk, about Iggy and the Stooges were out there in the late 60s and all these other like hipstery deeper cut bands and that that is your fucking Twin Peaks and Oz and the earlier stuff I mean shit man I think even even something like The X-Files even though it was on network TV it pushed some TV boundaries by virtue of it being a genre show by virtue of it being science fiction instead of a drama it was always going to have a lower ceiling for, for, for raising the stakes but yeah this is not proto prestige this is inventing prestige in the moment and inventing the modern HBO HBO has been the cultural tastemaker for the last 20 years. And I think that that really starts with The Sopranos. That's why people were subscribing in the 2000s. And David Chase was shopping around The Sopranos to several different networks. And when he brought it to CBS before HBO, they said, we'd love it. We want to buy it. But could you take out the therapy stuff? Jesus. He didn't want to work with them after getting that comment, but you know, HBO was willing to see his vision through. So nice. really sort of birthing the, the, the cultural force that HBO is today or fucking Max as it's uh, I guess known. <laughs> but like it really does give us all the best shows. It's Yeah, man. Succession and White Lotus are yeah, two of my favorite shows the last little while. Mm-hmm. So uh, in conclusion, hopefully we've given you an idea of at least one seventh of what we can offer you as a summary of The Sopranos. You know, this was a tough one for me how do you summarize something that uh, you love so much and could go on for hours about and we've elucidated hopefully what makes the show so iconic and so rewatchable and so good yeah watch it it's great Mm -hmm. Uh, i'll do the same <laughs> all right. So, yeah, as always, if you joined us, thank you so much for listening. Like, subscribe, mm-hmm. do all that stuff. And we'll see yeah, you next time. Leave a review, leave a comment, you know, contribute to the algorithm. All hail the algorithm. All right. We'll catch you next time. Ciao, ciao. Peace. Oh, I should also shout out to the comment who um, we were we were riffing in our last episode about a Nicolas Cage yes. Napoleon movie. Yes. And someone left a very funny comment. So uh, shout out to Errol Barossa, uh, who pointed out that there's a Napoleon quote. Uh, I'll be home in three days. P.S. Don't wash. Yeah, what what's that about? Don't wash. He was writing to Josephine, his, like the lady? to Josephine, yeah. and said that to her. Yeah, don't wash. Don't wash what? Your pussy. She he wants it to be stanky. Damn, really? Yeah, yeah. That's wild. <laughs> <laughs> he's like Uncle Junior. He's in the he's in the muff. <laughs> Thank you.